Welcome to Healthcare Highwire, where we balance business with healthcare. Sandy has served as Director of Clinical Operations, Clinical Compliance Specialist, and Director of Nursing Services. She joined LCS in 2013, where she is the Director of Clinical Services for our life plan communities. Today's host, Sandy Toole. Bridget has been with LCS for seven years. In her role as Corporate Counsel and Director of Legal and Compliance, she ensures the legal rights of LCS are protected by providing legal advice and recommendations to all levels of the organization. She is the Vice President, Corporate Counsel, Director of Legal and Compliance, and Corporate Compliance Officer. Today's speaker is Bridget Yuleman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Health Services Division podcast series. I am Sandy Toole, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Bridget Yuleman. Today, we're going to be discussing the Phase 3 requirements of participation for the centers of Medicare and Medicaid programs. Now, just as a reminder, Phase 3 went into effect in 2019 with no interpretive guidelines for the surveyors. Then, on June 29, 2022, this year, CMS finally released that guidance, which will begin on October 24th, 2022. Now, our goal is just to help you understand each of these changes and how you can best be prepared. Each podcast will showcase one of the changes taking place. And today, we are talking about binding arbitration agreements and compliance and ethics. Hello, Bridget, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sandy. It's good to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Me as well, Bridget. Well, let's just try to get right into this. Can you tell our listeners what they can expect to hear during today's podcast? Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about two topics. The first is binding arbitration agreements, and the second is compliance and ethics. Okay, well, let's begin by discussing binding arbitration agreements. Well, uh, Bridget, as you know, I am a nurse, and this just sounds like a lot of legal language to me. What on earth is a binding arbitration agreement? So, Sandy, a binding arbitration agreement, so when parties execute an arbitration agreement, the parties agree that in the unlikely event that a dispute occurs in the future, they will resolve the dispute in arbitration. And arbitration is basically a less formal and more efficient way to bring a claim in court and litigate a dispute. Basically, instead of suing someone in court, an arbitration agreement requires the parties to arbitrate the dispute. In arbitration, the dispute is typically heard by a panel of attorneys, and they're called arbitrators instead of a judge, during a hearing instead of a trial, and in an attorney's office instead of a courtroom. The arbitrator's decision at the end of the hearing is final and binding, which is why we call it a binding arbitration agreement. The LCS arbitration agreements are designed to resolve residency-related disputes in a much faster manner and is at a significantly reduced cost to all parties. Oh, that sounds that sounds really good. And thank you so much that explanation really did tell me what what we're talking about here. Well, what kind of guidance can we provide to the listeners on how to comply uh, with this new rule around arbitration agreements? Yeah, so that's a great question. 
the arbitration agreement rule allows binding arbitration agreements and nursing facility residency agreements, but with numerous conditions. So the updated guidance outlines CMS's thoughts on those conditions, as well as provides surveyors with recommendations on how to investigate whether the rules requirements are satisfied. The first tag, which is F847, implements the regulation's prohibition against making entry into an arbitration agreement a condition of admission or continued residency. The regulation also requires that a community explain the arbitration agreement to a resident or their representative, that a community obtain an acknowledgement of understanding by the resident or their representative, and that the agreement provide a 30-day right of rescission. There is also a prohibition against including any language in the agreement that prohibits or discourages the resident or anyone else from communicating with government officials. The new tag also states that communities should take every step to meet the resident's needs or special accommodations. And Sandy, an example would be literacy level, font size, language proficiency, format, or the resident's preferred communication. The second new tag, which is F848, implements the regulations requirements that arbitration agreements provide for the selection of a neutral arbitrator and a convenient venue. Wow, again, Bridget, thank you. That is just a really great explanation. You have a nice way of uh, making me, a nurse, understand what, what you're trying to say here. So honestly, if somebody gave me a document that contained an arbitration agreement, they would certainly need to point that out and explain it to me. Um, I think I understand, but again, what is the intent of these new requirements? Yeah, so Sandy, the intent, if you boil this all down in a nutshell, the intent of these new tags is to ensure that communities inform residents or their representatives or family of the nature and implications of any proposed arbitration agreement, and basically just to make sure that our residents are informed of their decision and whether they want to enter into any new agreements. I think that's wonderful. Since surveyors are nurses, I keep referring back to this nursing profession, but, you know, most surveyors are nurses and not lawyers. How do you believe they're going to check compliance on this? Yeah, Sandy. So the updated guidance identifies a number of questions surveyors should ask residents and their legal representatives regarding binding arbitration agreements. So some examples might be that surveyors may ask questions to residents and their family which include whether they felt pressured or obligated to sign an arbitration agreement. Surveyors may also ask whether the agreement was explained to the resident and their family if, and if they understood what that arbitration agreement meant. CMS recognizes that you know, some of our residents may have cognitive or other issues and a resident may not recall the arbitration agreement or fully remember all the details within the agreement. However, CMS has advised surveyors that if several residents or their representatives cannot recall the discussion regarding arbitration agreements, it's going to warrant further investigation. Corrective action could include rescinding the arbitration agreement or having residents re-sign the agreement after being re-educated on their rights. 
I am so glad you clarified that because my next question was going to be, what about those residents who are cognitively impaired? I could see where this might get really sticky. Again, if those residents and even their representatives don't know or understand what an arbitration agreement is, they may not remember that it was explained to them. So I really appreciate you pointing that out. Well, what what would you recommend communities do right now to ensure they are prepared and in compliance with this new guideline? Absolutely, Sandy. So we have several recommendations for our communities. First, communities should review how they are explaining and documenting binding arbitration agreements to residents and their legal representatives. If you're not following the above guidelines, additional education will need to be given to community staff involved in the process of discussing arbitration agreements with residents and their legal representatives. If you are using the current arbitration agreement language and following the accompanying checklist, then the good news is, is that you are in compliance with current CMS guidelines and guidance. Therefore, I would highly recommend that each community ensure that your community is using the current arbitration agreement language and I would also ensure your team is using the accompanying checklist when you're speaking with residents and their families or representatives. If you know a community is out there, if you're unsure of whether you have the current arbitration agreement language and checklist, I would just highly recommend that you reach out to your community's compliance analyst who would be more than happy to send you the latest documents and ensure you're following the, the and complying with this latest guidance. Oh, thank you, Bridget. This is great. And it's nice to know that there's somebody at LCS uh, Corporate that we can contact if we have any additional questions about that. So uh, the community's compliance analyst can help. And I, I think that's just wonderful support. Well, let's move right into compliance and ethics guidance. Um, can you give us some background on what this program entails? Absolutely, Sandy. So Medicare and Medicaid participating nursing facilities have been required to have a compliance and ethics program in place since March 23rd of 2013 under the Affordable Care Act. So this shouldn't be anything new or surprising to people. However, there was no regulatory mechanism to enforce the requirement until CMS issued its revised 2016 requirements of participation. Survey and enforcement of these standards will begin October 24th of 2022. Gosh, compliance and ethics originated nine years ago. I honestly had no idea. Well, hopefully then, as you point out, we are well on our way or, or fairly well prepared already, but what should communities do moving forward? Sandy, so communities need to ensure that they have a comprehensive compliance and ethics program in place. You know, this, as you mentioned, compliance and ethics has been around for numerous years, so there are already a lot of resources available for our LCS communities. On LCS Connect, under the quick links, there is a link there titled CMS Compliance and Ethics. If you click that link, you will be directed to a folder which includes a compliance and ethics guide, audit questions, an FAQ, and policies and procedures. So I would just encourage everyone listening to review those materials. Each community needs to comprehensively review your community's compliance and ethics program to ensure it aligns with the new guidance. 
These are on LCS Connect. That is really good to know. And I promise you, Bridget, I'm going to check these out following our podcast today. I'm anxious to look into those. Well, in addition to checking out these resources, do you have any other recommendations or items that you'd like to highlight? Yes, Sandy. So there are five takeaways that I would like to highlight today. So the first is that awareness. So all staff should be aware the community has a compliance program and how to anonymously report compliance issues. Surveyors will likely specifically ask staff if they are aware of the program and how to anonymously report. Sandy, it is impossible for a community to over-publicize their compliance program. So that would be the first takeaway that I would have. The second is a well-documented audit. Each community should have a routine audit and monitoring program that can be provided to surveyors. In particular, surveyors will likely ask to see documentation showing high-level personnel at the community are overseeing the program and they're well aware of how issues are resolved at a community level. The third item I'd like to highlight is integration with your COAPI program. So the revised guidance specifically recommends that the COAPI program be integrated and the COAPI committee work with the compliance officer to determine if there are trends or systematic problems that need to be addressed at the community level. Compliance officers should ensure their compliance programs include reporting, audit, and investigation findings as appropriate to the community's COAPI committee and that the compliance officer and the COAPI committee are coordinating efforts to address any identified issues. The two groups should be coordinating or looking for ways to coordinate auditing and monitoring activities, process improvement activities, and staff education and training. The fourth takeaway I'd like to highlight today is annually reviewing your compliance policies. So nursing facilities and compliance officers should be annually reviewing your compliance programs, including the results of routine audits and investigations of reported compliance issues, and make updates for the subsequent year's program based in part on this review. The annual review should be shared with the community's governing body and used to inform the subsequent year's compliance programming and staffing training. The fifth takeaway that I'd like to highlight today is to ensure that there is no actual or perceived retaliation. So the Sandy, the revised guidance specifically directs surveyors to ask community staff if they are confident in reporting compliance matters and that there is no fear of retaliation. Communities should encourage reporting of reasonable suspicions of crime and implement policies and procedures that promote a culture of safety and open communication in the work environment. The revised guidance also requires communities to post the conspicuous notice of employee rights, including the right to file a complaint with the state survey agency if they believe a community has retaliated against an employee or individual who reported a suspected crime and how to file such report. The sign should also be posted in an area that is visible to employees and must be at least the same size and type as other required employment-related signs. Wow, that is just a lot of really good information. Again, I feel like 
most of this should already be in place in our communities. And Bridget, as you know, there have just been so many changes with the new rules of participation. I liked a couple of things that you just pointed out, um, including and involving your community compliance officer in the QAPI or QA process. And really importantly, making sure our staff are well-educated on the reporting processes and that they should not fear retaliation. I think that's a big one. Staff are generally very fearful to bring things to the forefront for fear of that retaliation, and they need to understand that we are working all towards the best interest of our residents. So again, Bridget, thank you so much. This is just great information. Overall, do you know what the surveyors will be looking for? Yeah, so that's a great question. Surveyors will be reviewing your community's written policies and procedures and interviewing both staff and high-level personnel overseeing the program to ensure the program is in place. Surveyors will also be looking for examples of the compliance program in action, including those five takeaways that I highlighted above, evidence of the annual review, and that the organization has completed due diligence on high-level personnel overseeing the program. Well, Bridget, this has been just so enjoyable and such great information. I just, I thank you so much for joining me today. And I thank you all for joining us today for the continuing phase three rules of participation series of podcasts. I hope you have all found this discussion to be beneficial. And of course, we will continue to present more as we know more or if there are changes with uh, CMS guidelines as we continue this discussion in the coming weeks. Again, Bridget, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. It's my pleasure. And just thank you for hosting this podcast. I think it's such a great way to get information out to our community. So thank you again for hosting. Thank you all again. And this is Sandy Toole and Bridget Yulman signing off. I hope you join us again next time on Healthcare Highwire.